hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a former editor of the journal Cardiorenal Medicine. I was had that position for many years. I was also a very long-standing senior editor and editor-in-chief of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. Both journals were listed in the National Library of Medicine, PubMed. They had uh, increasing impact factors over time. Neither journal under my direction ever had an article retracted. And so the peer-reviewed process worked. The journals published valid scholarly work, both original research and review papers uh, and summary uh, systematic reviews and meta-analyses. So I have great experience as an editor. I also have considerable experience as an author. In fact, I am the most published person in my field in the world in history on heart and kidney disease, and I'm one of the most published people in COVID-19. So I'm approaching 700 listings in the National Library of Medicine. The average professor of medicine at a medical school achieves professor of medicine with 25 papers. So I can tell you, I know data, I know how publications work, I know the process, and wow, do I have an interview for you today. Uh, We have asked to the microphone uh, Mark Nathaniel Mead, and he goes by Nathaniel. He's an epidemiologist. He trained at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, one of the best schools of public health. And he has published a paper that has garnered considerable attention, and many consider it a breakthrough paper, because it has synthesized all the information from the original clinical trials done by the companies, mainly focusing on Pfizer, COVID-19 vaccines, as well as the published outcomes over time in terms of efficacy. And the paper has concluded that the vaccines should have never been used in children and should have been removed from the market in adults long ago, certainly should be off the market today. You have to read this paper. Make sure you share it with others. The title of the paper is COVID-19 Messenger RNA Vaccines, Lessons Learned from Registrational Trials and Global Vaccination Campaign. Now, I'm the senior author of the paper, so I participated. Uh, We spent the long-form interview on this show uh, with uh, uh, Mead, and I can tell you it's a terrific uh, scientific piece. It is garnering tremendous attention in, on social media, on the Internet. It's already listed in the National Library of Medicine. The journal Curious allows a free flow of comments, so they are pouring in at this point in time. And so it's exciting. Three years into the um, vaccine campaign that we finally have a peer-reviewed scientific paper declaring it's a failure in terms of both safety and efficacy. The vaccines have failed. It's in the peer-reviewed literature. And I'm telling you this because I expect the biopharmaceutical complex, this vaccine syndicate that's formed in the world, and and it's well-recognized in my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, that starting at the top, the WHO, the World Economic Forum, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, the Gates Foundation, CEPI, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, uh, Unitaid, Gavi, 
uh, the Eco Health Alliance, they are all in this vaccine syndicate, and they uh, have tremendous resources. They realize that governments have been forced to purchase these vaccines. It is a financial gravy train, and the last thing they want to see is a paper declaring that the global vaccine program has failed. So watch out. I think they're going to go after this paper and try to force the uh, journal and the editors to retract it against the ethical COPE guidelines. We're going to keep you updated on it. I really want you to share this interview share the links to the manuscript widely, and let's get people to look at it. The more people who look at the paper, review it, understand it, the less likely it's going to be pulled in terms of censorship because, in a sense, the horse is going to be out of the barn. So let's get on with the interview with Nathaniel Mead from Virginia. This is a terrific, terrific interview. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD for 25% off. The wellness company is offering the Signature Series Spike Support Formula. The wellness company supports this formula because it's designed to remove spike protein from the body. The Spike Support Formula is designed to help the body catabolize the spike protein, begin to remove it through its natural mechanisms. So go to twc.health and check out the spike support formula. You can use our promotional codes or go through our banner bars on our site to get promotional codes and discounts on your purchase. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. This is a late-breaking interview. I'm so happy that I've had a chance to to catch uh, uh, M. Nathaniel Mead. Well, Nathaniel is his his writer's name, uh, and it's a great American name. uh, But I can tell you, Nathaniel has really taken the world by storm with a recent paper. Now, I am an author on the paper, uh, this peer-reviewed manuscript, but I want him to explain it to you. Uh, and, and just as if you're learning about it for the very first time, and then we'll get into the discussion. Nathaniel, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Peter. It's a delight to be here. Thank you. Tell us about your background, where you grew up and, and where you went to college and graduate school. So I, I grew up on the North Shore of Boston uh, and um, had many experiences around the ocean and uh, uh, fishing and lobstering and uh playing baseball uh, in the North Shore of Boston. I was an all-star pitcher uh, and 
my my favorite sports memories uh, go back to that time. Uh, and uh, then I went to high school in New Hampshire. I was a, it was a private school. I was a day student. I was living on a farm. Uh, so uh, I managed a small dairy operation, and uh, that was fun. I learned all about uh, milk and dairy products and um, and also became very interested in nutrition during that time because uh, my father was diabetic, uh, and um, I wanted to understand more about what drove that disease. So I, I dove into... Uh, my own personal studies of nutrition. And then I had a, a, a wonderful experience uh, working with uh, large animal veterinarians in Europe, uh, where I learned about um, not only veterinary medicine, uh, this was at the, toward the end of my high school uh, experience, but uh, also um, I learned a lot about natural uh, whole, whole foods-based nutrition and uh, it really changed my life as a young as a young person because I felt so healthy when I came back from that that experience in Europe. I, I told my family, "We're doing it all wrong, <laughs> you know. We're, we're we we got to you know eat more plant based. You know, at that time we weren't even using the term plant based, but uh, more vegetarian uh, like diet and and um, and so I that started me on a path to really exploring nutrition in depth and. Uh, uh, when I went to college in uh, Reed College in in Portland, Oregon, uh, they have an exceptional biology program, and I was very interested in in biology. So I dove into that study. Um, I did my thesis on diabetes and diet uh, with a uh, pilot clinical trial at Oregon Health Sciences University. It was one of the earliest studies on diet and glycated hemoglobin, um, looking at. Wow. Uh, HbA1c for the first time. This was back in 1983, 84. Um, but in my year off, I took a year off to look to study uh, nutrition in a somewhat alternative context. It was the macrobiotic approach. Uh, and uh, so I, I studied at the Cushy Institute, which is a kind of a holistic uh, orientation. And so Finished my my studies in uh, at Reed and and it was a, a fantastic experience. Um, Reed was uh, they had number one biology program in the country, so I was very fortunate. Uh, number two in organic chemistry, um, and um, then I got into. <laughs> I thought I was going to go to medical school. But I became somewhat disillusioned with medicine when I realized that all my uh, classmates in the organic chemistry class, uh, their, their purpose in going to medicine, according to them at the time, their purpose was to uh, make a lot of money. And uh, I didn't hear anybody talking about really helping people and healing people. And I was also very interested in nutrition. You know, so I, 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 I decided to move in that direction. At the same time, I, I was writing uh, uh, for doctors and it was just something I fell into. I started writing articles and books and uh, mostly ghostwriting. Um, and uh, then I eventually uh, worked for a year at the NIH, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Wow. Um, I was an editor for uh, mainly copy editing for uh, environmental health perspectives, which is a very nice journal. Um, 
I then went in and wrote for that journal for quite some time, for about 11 years. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I was doing nutritional counseling and working at integrative medicine clinics. And <laughs> so I was doing uh, a number of things uh, concurrently. Uh, and did on some very important projects uh, early on. I worked on a book on AIDS uh, that it was uh, looking at the natural immunity issues with AIDS and then uh, assisted with a, um, a big study that uh, where I interviewed many men in New York City uh, uh, who had AIDS and uh, was invited to the third international AIDS conference where, of all people, Anthony Fauci spoke. Um, and that was in 1986. Um, and uh, I was a young, uh, you know, very uh, well, I, I, I felt like I was on, on the top of the world, you know, being able to go to an event like that. Uh, and uh, it just uh, really inspired me to explore science more deeply. Uh, so then uh, I decided to go to graduate school, uh, actually first went and taught high school biology for four years, uh, which was fun. Um, and then decided the public school system was a little too rough for me. Uh, I didn't like managing student behavior so much and, uh, uh, but it was a great experience. And so then I, I went to school at UNC, uh, Chapel Hill, the, uh, school of public health. Uh, which is now called the Gillings uh, School of Global Public Health, um, and uh, uh, majored in nutrition, nutritional epidemiology. Uh, and uh, I was in the doctoral program. Uh, I entered as a doctoral student. Um, I left with a master's degree uh, because I was so drawn projects and didn't feel at the time inspired to go through another four years uh, to, to get my dissertation. Uh, so I never finished my doctorate, um, but I did pass my doctoral comp exams and, you know, <laughs> uh, very tempted to go back at this point and try to get the PhD. Well, well so, sure, you're, you're at a point, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, most PhDs, in fact, all, I think, require a master's degree, but you have to go beyond that and take all the classes for your qualifying exams. Mm -hmm. Then you actually have to pass your qualifying exams, and then you start to work on your PhD, which can range in time. My wife's cousin uh, mm -hmm. got his PhD at University of Michigan in engineering. It took eight years. So oh. a PhD can be as long as eight years. Uh, typically, it's four uh, to six. Uh, while gosh. you were doing that, I was going to University of Michigan School of Public Health, and I majored in um, general epidemiology, and I did take the classes up to the qualifying exams, but I was like you, Nathaniel. You know, what happened is I looked at this and I said, what would I get out of my PhD? I'm already an author. I'm yeah. already publishing, and, uh, you know, like you, I was older. I had a family to feed. I, you know, I mm -hmm. had uh, responsibilities, mm -hmm. so I didn't yeah. uh, go for that final leg of the PhD so let's move into your your paper now and what motivated you to get interested in the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak COVID-19 crisis. Ooh, wow. Um, you know, from the beginning, I was questioning the narrative. Um, I 
could not understand how uh, Anthony Fauci could talk so openly about such a low infection fatality rate for the majority of the population, especially the younger population, and um, and then present the well, basically create a, a, a narrative of of emergency, uh, and it it just. Um, didn't it didn't sit well from the very beginning. Uh, and then when I looked at it from an epidemiological point of view, it seemed that, okay, we had, um, you know, 0. 0.0, what was it, 0.2% uh, infection fatality rate for the whole population that he declared early on. And, um, of course, for, for the older age groups, it was much more substantial, and especially for people who had a lot of comorbidities. Uh, so it was clear to me that a very small segment of the population was at high risk of dying from COVID-19. And yet, we're being fed a lot of information that sounded extremely fear-based. And that was creating, a, a, I think, a lot of cognitive dissonance, you know, because of the different narratives that were being presented, you know. And... Um, I also very early on became aware of this intersection or confluence between the um, scientific illiteracy or lack of scientific literacy uh, and the uh, appeals to authority uh, that were, you know, Mostly looking to federal officials and uh, to to high level government agencies for for instruction for guidance on what to do, and so that that didn't sit well with me either, you know. And I think this is something we can talk about later in this interview. Uh, but this led me to start to put the pieces together uh, and to really look at look carefully at the, um, at the data. And I started to assemble the data in, in the ways that I had been taught through my training, uh, through my work at the NIH and uh, for uh, some medical journals that I had worked with, the Integrative Cancer Therapies Journal. And, um, and I started to get a, a sense that there is a whole different story unfolding here that needs to be told. And of course, then uh, I started to listen to people like you and to others who were teaching the public about what was going on uh, early on. And I was inspired by that, but I was also afraid. I was afraid because I saw what was happening. I was, saw what was happening to so many respectable, highly credentialed people such as yourself in it. And it was... Uh, and huh. I kind of went, I went underground. <laughs> uh, uh, I went underground. Now, well, listen, Nathaniel, we're going to take a break for our sponsors. Uh, and, and so we're going to come back in just a second. We'll take a pause. We've been talking to Mark Nathaniel Mead. And let me tell you what, uh, he is a, a man of uh, just really an incredible life story, an all-star baseball player as a kid. Uh, he goes out to Reed College uh, out on the, you know, out in Oregon and studies. He's, then he works at the NIH. He becomes a writer, uh, works his way up the ladder, independent uh, a thinker. 
goes to graduate school at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, one of the top graduate schools in the United States. He was probably there when I was at graduate school at University of Michigan, also a top place. And uh, we're going to hear more on the on the backside of this um, show about what Nathaniel has done to step up and really contribute. Oh my gosh, this paper has been, in a sense, bombshell and bombshell applies. But we're going to take a pause right now for our sponsors and we'll be on uh, right back with you in just a moment you're listening to the mccullough report well the year 2024 is upon us and it is our chance to get it right and take back a free america americaoutloud.news is your source for uncensored and factual news that facilitates truth and unity among all Americans to restore that American dream we have always cherished. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Outlaw Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Who's got time for a nasal invasion messing up your lifestyle? Crush those nasties before they become a problem. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order with the coupon code OUTLOUD, you'll receive 20% off the entire purchase. Go to americaoutloud.shop. That's americaoutloud.shop and use coupon code OUTLOUD. Use Cofix RX because it works. ASEA believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel our very best. Our redox-based products tap into reserves within you to power your personal well-being. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. For exclusive savings, use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. Let's get real, let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is a McCullough Report and Courageous Discourse Substack. This has been a terrific get-together with Nathaniel Mead, uh, who has a master's in nutritional epidemiology from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Really extensive scientific writing, copywriting, uh, authoring experience. And let me tell you what, this paper that you put together was the challenge probably of a lifetime for an independent first author. Can you tell us more about it? Thank you. Uh, it, it was very much a challenge. Uh, I, um, I I was excited about jumping into it, especially knowing that I had some great co-authors to work with uh, because it, it turned into a wonderfully fruitful collaboration uh, with, uh, you know, kind of like a... I, I, this is something I haven't told you, but I used to play in a big jazz band back in college. I was a, a trumpet player. And so when I think about a jazz band coming together, you have, you know, yeah. in this case, we had a trombonist, saxophone, guitars, and all the drummers. So everyone has a different role. And, uh, and we tap into the skill set of each person and the, and the knowledge base. And it, it becomes such a rich synergy. Uh, and it creates uh, an incredible... Uh, opportunities for manifesting something truly great. So I was inspired by that, but I should also mention that I had some friends that 
uh, died early on from the vaccine, from the oh. shots. Oh, my Lord. And one was a dear friend who I'd known for 35 years, uh, who was uh, one of my closest friends uh, named Robert. I won't mention his last name, but he, uh, he was he diagnosed with an aggressive, uh, rapidly accelerating uh, lymphoma. I'm sorry, leukemia, AML, uh, acute myeloid leukemia. And he um, was told in no uncertain terms by the uh, oncology nurses, uh, five different nurses told him that they believed it was caused by the vaccine. Now, oh. Robert was not even questioning the vaccine when he went into the hospital. These nurses came forward and told him. And then... Um, he asked them, well, why haven't you told the administration? And they said, well, we don't want to lose our jobs. Uh, wow. and, and then he also happened to t discuss it with an oncologist. And Robert was a, a psychologist and knew how to get answers out of people. So he, he asked some very probing questions. And the, and the uh, oncologist basically confessed that he, too, believed it was, it was a contributing factor. So... Uh, that had a big impact on me uh and uh i his i mean the cancer was so rapid it was and you know i've worked in the cancer field as a nutritional oncology consultant for quite some time um and i have been able to work with some wonderful people uh who understand this disease and uh integrative oncologists. So they use uh, natural medicine methods in addition to the conventional medicine approaches. And, um, and I, um, I, I was just shocked by how fast it happened. And it had a big impact on me. I think it, it, it drove me more to understand this more deeply, uh, and to look at um, not just the cardiac events, the, the cardiovascular, but all of the other things that were happening, then had a neighbor who had three autoimmune conditions diagnosed after her th first booster, um, three by one doctor, three different autoimmune conditions. And um, I said, that's not right. That just doesn't sound right. Uh, and um, then I had, my mother had two friends. She's, my mother's 88 years old. Uh, wonderful, powerful Dutch woman, uh, very proud of being 100% Dutch. Uh, and uh, she, she, can, she said that her friends were getting this dizziness and vertigo. And mm -hmm. um, so she had two, two friends, one in particular who had been her longest, oldest friend, who suffering terribly from that. Uh, and I had a dear friend on the West Coast, similar uh, situation, extreme dizziness, and vertigo. And, um, I just looked at these things and it, the, the experiences of their suffering, their disability really drove me to, you know, I, I just felt tireless in the, in the desire to bring coherence to the story. And so this was really a desire to tell the story of what has happened from a scientific perspective over the past few years since since the authorization the emergency use authorization um i think many people were questioning the the the, the rapid nature of that authorization 
and why the uh, trials were so short. And uh, so that's what we looked at in the paper. And, and we looked at, you know, the methods, um, the execution, the reporting, and we found that there were problems. Um, so, I mean, Nathaniel, just hang on right there. I want to clue our, our audience in. The paper we're discussing, uh, the first author is Nathaniel Mead. Um, the senior author is myself. So you're talking to the first and senior author. And the title of the paper is COVID-19 Messenger RNA Vaccines, Lessons Learned from the Registrational Trials and Global Vaccination Campaign. It's in the peer-reviewed journal Curious, C-U-R-E-U-S, January 24th, 2024 issue. So it's just it just come out. And, um, uh, and this now is listed in PubMed. So you can find it in PubMed if you use that for searching. And uh, let me tell you, look anywhere on the internet, Nathaniel, you're going to hear about it. Um, <laughs> but, but tell us how you put together this, this opus magnus. <laughs> well, you know, again, I think really the desire to tell the story uh, and to weave together many key elements of research uh, from the past few years, uh, the desire to help the public understand the public, uh, uh, how the public and the medical community were misled um, regarding the trials, the, uh, the uh, uh, pivotal Pfizer and Moderna trials uh, and their findings, and also what transpired after the rushed authorization process. So initially, uh, my interest was just to look at the trials. And, and I think when I originally approached you, it was with that as the primary focus. And we um, we were then, as a team, looking at okay, what are the uh, what were the fundamental issues of these trials from a really critical, objective point of view? Where did they go wrong, um, and how might the findings have been misleading to the public? Um, so that was the initial interest. But then, in the course of uh, working on this paper, uh, w of course, things were coming in constantly. Uh, the FOIA documents, the uh, high rates of very serious problems. Uh, that that was a major bombshell, and of course, we felt the need to include that uh, because it would have been hidden from the public for what seventy five years <laughs> if the judge had not stopped them. Uh, so that this was, um, but the process of writing this thing, I, I, I would say, first of all, by far the most important paper I've ever worked on. I've had over 40 papers published on PubMed, um, and nothing compared to you, but, it, but still, I, you know, it, it's by far the, the most significant and, and substantial paper. Um, and the, I guess, if you're interested, I could tell you, you know, a little bit more about the peer review process as I saw it uh, and the experience that of, of that process. Well, uh, let me finish on the scope of the papers. So okay, okay, okay. Registrational trials. How far did you get into what's happened once they've rolled out? You know, a lot of it was initially looking at the reanalyses of the data um, from the, you know, from the trials, uh, the serious uh, adverse events. And um, and the 
many of these serious adverse events were not really identified until after the emergency use authorization. Um, and they included, uh, you know, especially cardiac events, which I know has been your primary interest, and then uh, cancers and autoimmune problems and uh, reproductive problems, neurological, it, just the full gamut, uh, hematological. Uh, so these were uh, serious problems that kept unfolding and were being published in the literature, mostly as case reports initially. And then they became reviews and systematic reviews. And, um, and it was just this uh, tsunami of research that was just being released. And, you know, I'm sure you heard the term infodemic uh, early on. And initially, the infodemic was about just the sheer mass of information. But after the vaccines were released, the infodemic became a pejorative term for misinformation, you know, uh, and for any anybody who was trying to question the narrative. Um, so that was a very interesting thing, just to witness that as, as someone who'd done a lot of writing, to see that terms were changing. Uh, of course, the meaning of vaccine was uh, redefined in also. Uh, uh, but the, uh, what we realized is that in, in the reanalyses is that these products never, ever underwent adequate uh, uh, safety and toxicological testing um, in accordance with the usual standards. So that, that was shocking, you know, to realize that so, so clearly. Uh, but the rushed process um, was was simply bound to result in some very very bad uh, outcomes, and uh, as as you know, I mean, many people know now that there were DNA contamination issues that were eventually identified that were part of the that were not applicable to the original product studied in mm -hmm. the trial, but became part of the mass production process that. Uh, you know, it's called process, what, process two, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that, that has been a shock because the implications of that are profound in terms of risk for, of autoimmune and uh, uh, malignant disease. So then we, then we also had the issues of the, uh, the immune system being clarified over time. And I think, my my interest in, I, I've always been a biologist at heart. I just love to understand the biological underpinnings of things. And so the immunologic basis for the vaccine's lack of efficacy started to become very clear uh, as we as I was getting deeper and deeper into this paper and talking with different people and listening to Geert van der Bosch, who's a brilliant Dutch immunologist vaccinologist. Uh, so the, and finally, I'll just say that the risk benefit, uh, aspects of the paper are profoundly important too. I think we, we, you know, came up with some very good conclusions based on our own assessments, uh, but also the, uh, some of the published data on that pre already prevent, uh, uh pre present, uh, risk benefit assessments. Uh, so there's quite a lot to chew on. It's a, as you know, it's a huge paper. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it's hard to know 
how, how many references do we have? Okay. 293, yes. 293. Now listen, an average <laughs> paper, I was an editor for decades. An average <laughs> paper has about 30 references. Ah, I, didn't, I didn't know uh, that. 293. Um, well, listen, before we get to some of the, the dialogue you've had with uh, people online, I want to read to the authors uh, a really... Um, uh, a, a really important part, you know, and the abstract is well put together. Um, uh, and, you know, I'll just re read it to people. Among the other major topics addressed in this narrative review are the published analyses of serious harms to humans, quality control issues, and process-related impurities. These are these DNA fragments that are found. Mechanisms underlying adverse events, the immunologic basis for vaccine inefficacy, the, the, the fact that they, they don't work, and concerning mortality trends based on the registrational trial data. The trends were in place from the trials. And, and, uh, and Nathaniel goes on to say that the risk-benefit balance substantiated by the evidence to date contraindicates further booster injections and suggests that, at a minimum, the messenger RNA injection should be removed from the childhood immunization program until proper safety and toxicological studies are conducted. Federal agency approval of the COVID-19 messenger RNA vaccines on blanket coverage population-wide basis had no support from an honest assessment of all the, the relevant registrational uh, data and commensurate uh, consideration of risks versus benefits Finally, given the extensive, well-documented, serious adverse events and unacceptably uh, high harm-to-reward ratio, we urge governments to endorse a global moratorium on the modified messenger RNA products until all relevant questions pertaining to causality, residual DNA, and aberrant protein production, that is spike protein production, can be answered. Nathaniel, wow. <laughs> wow, that's in peer review. That's like gets a wow with a capital W. You kind of really lay it out there saying definitely not for the kids, but when you consider this whole thing, pull them off the market and let us analyze. Do you think there's enough there now to justify all of that? <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, certainly with regard to the children, uh, they're, they're – has never been any study done uh, in a controlled context uh, regarding children. And so we're, we're putting these uh, shots into children that are completely unprecedented in their biological effects on a population-wide basis. And it's, it's frankly, um, if somebody had told me that this might happen, uh, Ten years ago, I would have said you're you're completely a conspiracy idiot or something, you know, because I that's the way I would have thought, you know, because well, how, possibly approve this, but as you as as I think many people now understand, this is giving the uh, drug companies immunity to get it on the schedule, and so that's just uh, criminal. It's criminal that that something that's toxic would be allowed on schedule. Well, Nathaniel, yeah. think about this. You know what we are told is: listen, the vaccines are you know over ninety percent effective in stopping COVID nineteen. That's what we are told from the press release. We were told initially there were no serious safety concerns. I distinctly 
remember this, in November of 2020. Mm. Uh, they come out and we're told, listen, it's just shot number one and shot number two. It's the primary series. That's it. You're done. Get these shots and you're done. Mm. And within a few months, uh, we hear, oh, well, you know, they're not working so well. So now take a third shot as the first booster, which was just another injection of the same vaccine. And when we got to that third shot, when you think about it, there was no cumulative dose toxicity data. Mm. That was completely uncharted waters of mm. what happens when we give a third shot. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I want to go back to something that I've been meaning to talk with you and my colleagues about that I haven't brought up before, but I think it's very important. When the, when the trials were initially done and they were looking at uh, very mild symptoms as outcomes and measuring them as outcomes for these studies. Of course, they were never really able to look at severe disease in any meaningful way in these studies. They were only looking at mild to moderate disease, um, COVID-19 symptoms. But what's interesting about this from a bi biological point of view is those people who had symptoms Ironically, if, you, if they had been followed longer in time before the vaccine showed up, if they had been followed, those same people very likely would have had robust immunity against reinfection. So the symptoms themselves were among the, uh, among the population that before the vaccine showed up, they were actually indicating that people would very likely be protected in the future. <laughs> but that got pathologized as a disease outcome during mm -hmm. the trials. And then, of course, the trials were stopped prematurely. And so we couldn't follow those people to see what happened. And the placebo group was basically, I would say, uh, gently coerced by lots of misinformation to get the shots, um, and and so the the controlled part of the trial ended, and mm. we didn't have a chance to really look at what was going on. But imagine if they had followed those people who had the symptoms over time, they very likely would have shown very favorable outcomes because this was a generally healthy population that was sure. in the trial. Sure, and you plus we, you, would, you would give you an opportunity to, to study kind of what, what they now call hybrid immunity. Yes. If we go back, you know, I was a principal investigator, co-principal investigator of the Imodulon vaccine trial program. This was a proposed trial of giving a cellular-based vaccine. So yeah, I'm not anti-vax. I was actually a vaccine um, investigator. We proposed this to the NIH in Operation Warp Speed, and I was very involved in the protocol development. And mm. I can tell you, it was very different than these registrational trials. We proposed vaccination of nursing home patients. Mm. nursing home mm -hmm. patients and workers, a mm -hmm. large-scale trial, and the outcomes were hospitalization and death. It's very mm. important. Hospitalization, not whether or not you got COVID. We weren't interested in whether or not someone got mild to moderate COVID. We wanted to know about hospitalization and death. And the nursing home patients, those are the ones being hospitalized and, and dying. We also proposed what's called intent-to-treat principles. Very important. Mm -hmm. Meaning when mm -hmm. people are randomized, Everything counts. From the minute they're randomized, everything counts. And, and Nathaniel, what happened in like Pfizer's trials program? 
about intent to treat. Yeah, it disappeared. Right. right. So they didn't count everything from the time of randomization. They said you get shot one and nothing counts and you have to wait for shot two and yeah. still nothing counts until two weeks after shot two. Well, yeah. that's a long period of time for people to get COVID. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And um, this is a bit of a segue, but um, or a non sequitur, I should say. But that two week period that you just mentioned is very significant. Many people don't realize this, uh, and I, I think this is where um, I kind of wish we had added this to the paper, but it's it's just what it is. So you can only put so much. But that two-week interval, because it was determined that you weren't getting protection for at least two weeks, people were classified as unvaccinated up to that two-week point. And so the the many 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 people who have died in that interval very likely from adverse effects of the vaccines now that we understand the cardiological and so forth this is um a a, a huge uh missing piece of the discussion for the scientific community because pretty much every and i can say this as someone who has literally read hundreds and hundreds of papers, that the CDC's data has been uniformly based on misclassification of unvaccinated people as vaccinated or vaccinated people during that two week period as unvaccinated. Okay. So during that two week period, uh, you know, so many people either developed serious problems and then subsequently died or died during that two-week period. Well, uh, hang on a second. So it, so you get shot number one. Yeah. And then there is a period of time between shot number two, you know, number two. So that yes. period of time doesn't count. Yes. You get shot number two. Then it's two weeks after shot number two. So there's a blanking period, you know, of about four to six weeks and some people, you know, in, in clinical practice. And what happened was mm. the CDC in clinical practice followed that same um, algorithm that was used in the clinical trial. So they, they didn't consider people fully vaccinated until they got two weeks after the shot. And we're making the case, and I want people to understand that, that everything counts. From the time you yep. decide you want to walk into a vaccine center, it counts. That's called intent to treat. That's a principle of clinical trials, and it was violated. And because it was, uh, everything was skewed. They, they made it look like that things were happening in the unvaccinated, you know, out in the public program when they were happening in the vaccinated. The second thing is it worked to grossly overestimate vaccine efficacy. Because what happened in the clinical trials, the people who took the vaccine, they actually had a little explosion of having COVID because the body's mm. trying to react to the, the messenger mm. RNA, people getting exposed to, to COVID. So everyone knew, you know, in clinical practice after the first shot, that's actually a risk period. There's mm. like, a, you know, a pretty good risk you're going to get COVID. And so all of this worked. It was a series of systematic things that were done to overestimate mm. vaccine efficacy, to make the vaccines look way better than what they really were. Absolutely. And these are these are also observational studies. These are not controlled trials. 
so it's very easy to distort outcomes when you use these tactics for for mm-hmm. uh, assessment and, and and analysis. And so, really, they were turning reality on their head uh, when they used this two week rule or what uh, Norman Fenton in the UK is called the cheap trick. Um, and, and, and some of the studies are going 28 days out, you know, mm-hmm. before they say somebody's vaccinated uh, from that second shot for reasons that are kind of obscure to me. But when you look at, at the mortality, they're completely the opposite of what it would be if they had, a, I think, if you had included those people who, uh, perished in the first two weeks or mm. two to four weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really turning reality on its head. So um, this again is, I think, one of the reasons why I think scientific literacy is so critical, but at a very high level that we're talking about. Because as you know, most medical doctors don't have training in epidemiology and biostatistics. You know, you're an exception to the rule, and and many doctors don't have that training. And that training is essential for really understanding some of these methodological tricks that are played in order for uh, the industry to get the outcomes that they want. Um, this has been going on for a very long time. I, I, I'm sure you're aware of this, but there was a book published back in uh, the 70s uh, called Confessions of a Medical Heretic by Robert S. Mendelssohn medical doctor. He was a very high-level medical doctor who was a heretic. (laughs) He was questioning what was going on. And one of the things that he looked at was the the clinical trials and how they were reported back in the 70s. And he uh, said that the FDA, which at that time, I think, had a lot more integrity and wasn't yet... um, captured by the uh, pharmaceutical industry, um, the FDA did a study, and this is in his book, he provides detail about this, looking at the clinical trials and the way they were reported. And the FDA found out that uh, I think it was one third of all the trials had never even been conducted. In other words, the, the, the industry was reporting trials that were never even done, but they were saying, oh, yeah, we have data. We have the data. Here's the data. Mm-hmm. And so when they went back and asked for the information uh, and the, the actual data, mm-hmm. the primary data, it wasn't there. Right. Uh, just, you know, the term they use is data on file. <laughs> so, so it's like, you know, where's the file? Listen, Nathaniel, we just have a few minutes left. Oh. I want you to... Uh, let us know. Um, Curious is a fun publishing platform. It's, it is fully peer-reviewed. Tell us quickly about the uh, the peer review process and what it involved and what type of feedback we're getting online. Ooh, okay. Well, it was a long and arduous process. Um, <laughs> very arduous. Uh, I would say the most difficult thing I've ever experienced. We had eight independent expert reviewers. Wow. Um, which is pretty exceptional, I think. And uh, three high-level medical editors. Um, and one, the last editor I worked with was based, was based in India. So we had interesting time zone issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, over 200 comments uh, were provided. Uh, over 200 comments from yeah. the reviewers. So let me tell our listeners, you know, I was an editor for decades. 
So I, you know, this was in my wheelhouse. In in general, we have two reviewers, <laughs> maybe a third statistical reviewer, and then we have uh, major comments, minor comments, and and let's say each reviewer comes up with ten comments, maybe fifteen on a thorough review. It would be typical to have two reviewers and let's say thirty comments. Many of the comments are the same ones that you know the, the, the people find the same issues, but every single reviewer comment needs a response from the author. This is what Nathaniel did, and so it's comment response and how you change the manuscript to be responsive to the comment. This is called peer review. It's very extensive. And yeah. uh, give us a, give us an idea. No. How, how long was the rebuttal letter that you did, or the response to reviewers comments? Or I guess well, it, was done, it was done iteratively, right? So you didn't have yeah. Time. And and I, thankfully, I was able to allocate some of the tasks to some of the uh, the co-authors, co uh, right. and and uh, you know because of the expertise of each co-author, it was very helpful to have that help. Um, to have that uh, uh, very insightful and ex uh, expertise, I, I'm good at organizing information, and uh, uh, I just kept it all organized in a in a big comprehensive file, and uh, and then would occasionally ask questions for clarification uh, from some of the reviewers. But it was, um, you know, overall the comments were appropriately critical and provided much constructive feedback that informed the okay. evolution of the paper. And then the, um, you know, I, I mean, I look, I'm just, I'm just greatly relieved and gratified that we had a publisher who was honest and courageous enough mm -hmm. to publish this really important review paper. Um, I think it's, it is a very important contribution and, and I'm, I'm quite happy with the product, the final product. You know, it joins a few others. There was a paper earlier by Freeman and Peter jo Dosey saying, "Listen, the risk-benefit balance here isn't, um, you know, isn't favorable." Peter mm -hmm. Parry from Australia, uh, two papers now with Julian Gillespie is is, is concluded. Uh, risks outweigh benefits, and one of the Parry papers they say put a pause on this, but none of them actually did the deep dive on the the registrational trials and, and put it together now real quickly in a, about a minute left what are people saying in these comments to curious my email keeps saying there's another comment i'm so <laughs> i'm dying to hear what are people saying well some some very positive things um you know but then we we have the internet trolls who are uh out there saying negative things and um you know we expected it we we fully expected a, a major backlash uh and uh, I've had to be somewhat disciplined in not getting involved in the drama of uh, getting pulled into these uh, petty, petty exchanges with people who really don't haven't even read the paper. It's very clear that the negative comments are coming from people who have not oh, read the paper. That's a good point. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just basically reacting. They're reacting emotionally and ideologically. They're not coming from a scientific, neutral perspective and saying, okay, let's look at this issue. Instead, they're just, you know, ridiculing uh, the paper from purely superficial grounds. Right. Yeah. Well, this has been going on for a long time. It's going on you know, three and a half years. The very first paper I published in uh, the American Journal of Medicine, you know, about, about a proposal to treat COVID-19. 
Um, and that's a you know very highly ranked journal. I, I got these. Uh, it, it doesn't. It's not like Curious where it allows these real time comments, but it got letters to the editor, and they kept pouring in. And the letters were like, "You can't do this. You, mm. you can't publish a paper saying you can treat COVID." Mm. And then my response is, "Well, yeah, I can, and I even have more data." Uh, we wow. had a paper published with Stephanie Senoff, the lead author, and again, it was, it was a mechanistic paper on safety. She's one of the co-authors of this paper. Mm-hmm. And we got a response back uh, from uh, from an author who said, this paper should be re- retracted. You know, I don't like this paper. It should mm-hmm. actually be pulled. This, wait a minute, this is a fully published, contracted, cited the National Library of Medicine. It's part of medical history now. You just don't pull it because somebody doesn't like it. But this guy really pressed the issue, mm-hmm. and he went to the... Um, he went to the uh, not only the editor of the journal, he went to the publisher. And the editor of the journal said, listen, if you've got a problem with this, write a letter to the editor and let them respond. So he did. His name is Barrier. And he responded to the Senoff paper. And uh, and then Senoff did a reply to him. Yes. He said, you know, we even have more concerns. And here's a whole table of the mechanistic problems with safety. So the, the letter to the editor process and response is very mm. fair because it allows you to even further build out the, the arguments. So, but it sounds like that's, it's general, yeah. That's a great comment because that's the way it should be. We should be able to have a conversation where we get to weigh carefully what is being criticized and have a response. That paper by uh, the response to Barrier is a fantastic paper, yeah. and we cited in our paper. So there we go. Well, listen, we're yeah. going to have to leave it here. We've been talking to Thank Mark you. Nathaniel Mead. He goes by Nathaniel, and uh, wow, this paper is going to be talked about for a long time. We're going to feature it on Courageous Discourse, really, as an important breaking event. Uh, we're at a time point now, three years into the vaccine campaign. This paper's out, putting a punctuation. Uh, Mark, really a stamp saying, listen, they're not safe. We've got to get them off the market. And it's all evidence-based. It's in the peer-reviewed literature. You watch for the calls for retraction. They're going to come in hard now. People don't want to hear this. They don't want to see this. And in many, we're bringing them bad news, but you've shown a tremendous amount of courage, a tremendous amount of intellectual stamina. And now I understand you so much better as a well- developed and disciplined uh, medical writer and epidemiologist. Uh, It's been terrific to have you on the program. And I'm just so honored to be uh, talking with you, uh, Dr. McCullough. It's been a, a, and to work with you on this paper. It's really been fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I'm equally honored. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. 